Over these past few weeks, we've spoken of the first noble truth, that is the truth of dukkha, and its connection also with the understanding of the ungovernable nature of phenomena, the understanding of anatta. We've also spoken of the second noble truth of craving being the cause of dukkha, and both Rebecca and Damaruan gave uh, beautiful talks on this second noble truth. So tonight I'd like to speak about the third of the noble truths, which is the ending of dukkha, really the culmination of the path. And the Buddha speaks to this very directly in his teaching on this. He says, and this bhikkhus is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha. That is the fading away without remainder, the cessation, the renunciation, the relinquishment, and the letting go of craving. Well, this is very clear and unambiguous in terms of what constitutes the end of dukkha. But is it even possible for us to imagine the mind free of craving? This is such a deeply rooted, deeply habituated conditioning in our minds. We might resonate more closely, you know, with the famous prayer of St. Augustine when he said, Dear Lord, make me chaste but not yet. And I think that's maybe what our own attitude is with regard to the relinquishment of craving. Let me be free of craving, but not quite yet. And of course our society, our culture, just reinforces this. There was a sign in a New York store window that said, Don't let desires pass you by. (laughs) I mean, everything we're being fed with this message, you know, to increase your desire, feed your desire, increase your desire, as if somehow that's a good thing. A few years ago, I was sitting on retreat, and a few lines of the Buddhist teaching from, you could call it his enlightenment song, what, what came to his mind you know, after his enlightenment under the Bodhi tree. It said that he declared upon his enlightenment, realized is the unconditioned. That is what is beyond birth and death. Realize the unconditioned Achieved is the end of craving. So again, he's pointing very directly to the nature of the realized mind, the awakened mind. Achieved is the end of craving. But as I reflected on these words while I was on retreat, achieved is the end of craving, I began to understand them and the possibility of practicing them in a different way. Previously, I had understood this teaching, realizing the end of craving, as being the far-off goal. It was being the end of the path, someday, maybe, we'll come to this place where there's no more craving. But at this particular time, rather than seeing it as the end of the path, (coughs) or some far-off state, I began to understand the possibility of the end of craving as being something we can practice in each moment. That this is our practice now, not something to put off for the future. When we explore the meaning of the Buddha's words, the Buddha's declaration, achieved is the end of craving, and the freedom of that, 
when we explore that in our own experience, not simply as you know, a Buddhist philosophical uh, statement, it becomes easier for us to stand, to understand the natural ease and openness of mind when we have let go of craving, even if it's for a few moments. We can begin to see how the force of craving in the mind, not theoretically, we actually can see and observe it for ourselves, (coughs) how the force of craving obscures the natural clarity, the natural openness. When we pay attention to those moments when the mind lets go of craving, is free of craving, we get a taste (coughs) of the possibility of peace in the mind. So it's something we can taste for ourselves, even if it's for just a few moments. So a simple experiment to make. As you go through the day, watch for those times when craving, when wanting, is present. Maybe you'll have to wait a few days for the next one to come. (laughs) But when it does come, eventually, really notice, make it a point of noticing what does it feel like when the mind is wanting. What does that experience feel like? And if you can be with that, and be with the kind of tightness or the unease of unfulfilled wanting, you know, that craving, and then remembering that it will pass by itself. It does not need to be fulfilled to come to the end of it. If we can simply be mindful of that craving, feeling it, feeling the dukkha of it, and then watch to see when it goes, when it leaves the mind, and to notice what that, that's like. What is the feeling when we're experiencing the end of craving? So we can, we can taste what the Buddha is talking about. And my experience is that it always feels like the mind is being let out of the grip of something. When the craving is there, it's as if we're in the grip of this wanting. And the craving, the wanting goes away, everything relaxes. There are some moments of peace. There are some moments of ease. So the great gift of retreat is that you have the opportunity to see this over and over again. You know, so many moments of craving. Sometimes they're really big, you know, when we get really caught up in major fantasies in the mind. And sometimes it may be small little cravings. You know, you have a craving for a cup of tea or whatever it may be. If we can be alert to the arising of this, you can make it a you could make it an intention in the mind to be aware of the arising of the craving in order to see, in order to understand the dukkha of the craving and the peace of its cessation, the peace of its ending. And right in that, we begin to have an experiential understanding of the third noble truth. So Toko Urgyen, who was a very famous Dzogchen master of the last century, He spoke, and this is in the language of the Tibetan Dzogchen practice, he spoke about practicing the recognition of the nature of mind, which is that union of clarity and emptiness. He talked about practicing that recognition for short moments many times. So there's something very instructive about that teaching. It's not a state that we try to hold on to, because then that can become just another clinging. 
but rather just to practice it for short moments many times. And that's how we can practice the end of craving. Not that we have to get some meditative state where there's no craving and then somehow hold that, but rather practicing it for short moments many times. Every time a craving arises, and if we can see it, if we can be alert to it, and then practice simply letting it pass away, noticing the difference, noticing the ease. After some time, we get more habituated, we get more familiar with this place of freedom in the mind. The good news about this is that we don't have to be fully enlightened to practice the end of craving. Now, maybe craving will be fully uprooted at that point, but we can practice it right now, each time it arises. I love watching these little moments of wanting, both to see how deeply rooted they are, and just love these engagements with Mara. <laughs> you know, so many times I've been on retreat, you know, and sitting and walking, and there'll be a thought, and this is just one, one example, oh, a cup of tea, and I'll see it. No. Don't need it. And then 15 seconds later, the thought will come again. Oh, a cup of tea. No, don't need it. And this can go on, as you know, for many times. It's sort of like a blade of grass pushing its way up through cement. And then just to watch, in the end, you know, the 10th, 11th, oh, go for the tea. And some, sometimes that's what happens, and it reveals the persistent power of craving, even small ones. But sometimes the mind actually does let go, just it's that moment of renunciation. No, don't need to do that. And to feel the, the strength, the empowerment, even from these little moments of renunciation. You know, it's like we're not biting on the hook of whatever the desire may be. And to see the freedom in that, it's momentary. But the more we practice short moments many times, it becomes a greater and greater strength for us. There are many different methods and many different vocabularies and even many different metaphysical descriptions in the various Buddhist traditions which describe the nature of ultimate freedom. And so we can, we can hear many different kinds of words describing it, but all the traditions agree on what practice it is that liberates the mind. There's one common understanding and that is liberation through non-clinging. So this is from the Pali Canon, and this, this phrase, liberation through non-clinging, happens, arises many times in the suttas. In this particular sutta, the Buddha is talking to his son, Rahula, who had ordained first as a novice and then became a fully ordained bhikkhu monk when he was 20. So this is the Buddha instructing his son, any kind of form whatsoever, again, form of the material elements, physical elements, any kind of form whatsoever, Rahula, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, having seen all form, material elements, and then he goes to the other aggregates, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness, seeing all as they really are with correct wisdom, thus, this is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself, 
one is liberated through non-clinging. So it's a very clear teaching of what liberates the mind with whatever arises. And these five aggregates are just a shorthand for describing every single aspect of our experience. Whatever arises in the mind, in the body, externally, internally, it all should be seen with proper wisdom. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. By doing this, one is liberated through non-clinging. Same teaching is in the Tibetan tradition. There's a very famous 19th century Dzogchen master. His name was Patrol Rinpoche. And he was known as the enlightened vagabond because he just wandered uh, in eastern Tibet as a vagabond. It's just this wandering, this wandering monk. Uh, and it's said he was tremendously beloved of the common local people of Tibet because he was so simple. And yet his teaching, and he was a very realized being. So he wrote or recited uh, a teaching which he called Advice from Me to Myself. So this is Patrol Rinpoche speaking to himself. Listen up, old bad karma Patrol, you dweller in distraction. That's us. <laughs> For ages now you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances, by experiences. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around about Carrying, carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You are completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end. 19th century. He's talking to us. <laughs> With never enough time to finish them, just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end, but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. The message is very simple. Liberation through non-clinging. If you let go of everything, 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 that's the real point. So the question for us is how do we practice this? How do we accomplish this? How do we experience non-clinging and non-craving? At first, on a momentary level, and in the end, with the complete uprooting of these tendencies. Now, we can practice and accomplish this in many different ways, in different traditions, different traditions of Buddhism, will highlight one or another of these different methods. We can decondition clinging and decondition craving through an increasingly refined awareness of the three characteristics. That is of impermanence, the unsatisfying nature of experience because they're impermanent, and their selfless, impersonal, ungovernable nature. And that's a lot of what we've been doing here. You know, all the instructions 
are really about being aware of what's arising. And in that mindfulness, in that awareness, these three characteristics become more and more obvious. We see more and more clearly and with greater and greater precision the impermanence of whatever arises. It's not that we have to make that happen, it's how things are already happening. And we simply have to have enough presence of mind to see it, to be open to it. So in that way, the practice is really not about striving for something. It's about settling back and seeing clearly how things actually are happening. You know, we see the constant flow of change. And as that becomes more apparent, we understand, not theoretically, we understand deeply in ourselves that no particular arising will be satisfying precisely because it's changing. So this is not difficult to see you know, when we're present, when we're being mindful. And through developing a sustained wise attention, and this is why the sustained part is really important, which is why we emphasize so much the continuity. When we're seeing these characteristics in a sustained way throughout the day, moment after moment, their selfless, impersonal nature becomes very obvious. And we can fulfill the Buddha's instructions to his son, Rahula, seeing everything with perfect wisdom. This is not mine, this I am not, this is not myself. We see that there's no one behind the flow of experience to whom it's happening. But rather what we call self is the flow of changing experience. This is a profound shift of perspective. These three characteristics are what the Buddha called the drawbacks, or we could call it the downside of experience, the downside of conditioned existence. But happily, there is an upside to the downside. It's precisely because impermanent phenomena are ultimately unsatisfying. It's precisely because of that that we're motivated to seek, to understand, to experience a greater happiness, a more fulfilling happiness. And the Buddha pointed to this very directly. He said, if there were no drawbacks or dangers in the world, beings would not become disenchanted with the world. But because there are these drawbacks in the world, beings become disenchanted with it. Because there are drawbacks, the downside, beings become disenchanted. It's illuminating to watch our reactions to this teaching. How do we relate to words like dangers, drawbacks, disillusionment, disenchantment. You know, when we hear those words, do they sound gloomy to us? Do they sound fearful? Or in seeing things more completely, do they they suggest a greater place of openness, a greater place of peace? It's important to contemplate the meaning, particularly of the word disenchantment, because the connotation of it in our common usage is not—it's not particularly desirable. You know, oh, you're disenchanted, and it feels like a withdrawing or not a very pleasant state. And yet, the Buddha used this word very often: disenchantment. He often uses this word as the precursor to awakening. 
So it's helpful to really understand what it means. Disenchantment means waking up from the spell of enchantment. It's like the happy ending of so many fairy tales, you know, where someone, the prince or the princess, is cast a spell being cast on them, and then something happens and they wake up. They become disenchanted. It's waking up from the dreamlike state of our ignorance, of delusion. So one of the great joys of teaching retreats and you know, sitting and doing interviews, and it's quite amazing, you know, there's this parade of minds <laughs> that just come in, <laughs> all so different. You know, and it's just so many facets of this jewel of the mind being presented. And it's so interesting just to hear, you know, how you, each of you in your own ways at different times, break a particular spell of enchantment. So just yesterday, in one of the interviews, uh, there was a very good example of this. After uh, the talk uh, that Rebecca gave on the personality types, this yogi who came in and reported uh, had a sudden realization from listening to the talk uh, that he was a deluded type. And he was so happy in reporting this because it was like, oh, that's how my mind is. My mind, is, it was like understanding something that had not been understood before. And in seeing that, he saw that the defilement which was most pervasive was not desire and aversion, as he had thought, but it was actually doubt. You know, by understanding, oh, deluded type, and then that opened him to seeing oh, all these doubting thoughts you know, that were arising, and it's like, waking up from the enchantment of all those doubts, which is, doubt is very enchanting because it comes masquerading as wisdom. You know, we hear all these very wise-sounding thoughts in the mind. Oh, maybe it would be better to watch the breath at the abdomen. No, I'll get more concentrated watching the breath at my nose. I should sit longer. No, I should sit shorter. I should do longer work, whatever. You know, it's this endless kind of indecision and perplexity, or I can't do this, or it's not the right time, whatever. But it all sounds like wisdom. And really, it's just doubt masquerading as wisdom. So, this yogi was reporting all this to me and very, really happy to see, you know, with clarity, you know, the deluded type of mind, the con- seeing that and then seeing that it was uh, conditioning all of these doubts. And then he uh, was using one mental note to relate to all these doubting thoughts, which I thought was just a great note. It's, it's going to now make it into the... Uh, the canon of instructions. (laughs) He was saying, whenever one of these doubting thoughts arose, he would say to it, is that so? I should be at the nose. Oh, is that so? I should be at the abdomen. Oh, is that so? You know, I should sit long. Oh, is that so? Is that so? And just that simple response to all those doubting, not buying into them, Is that so? Is that so? It's like it cleared a path right down the middle. You know, so instead of being pulled out in all of these thoughts, these doubting thoughts, they just all got cleared away by that simple response to them, by seeing that they are just thoughts. So I really enjoyed that. Uh, You might try it with any kind of repetitive thoughts. 
oh, is that so? Is that so? And we learn not to give so much power to our thoughts. Not so much power to all the stories that are going on in our minds. Your awareness of the impermanent, empty nature of thought is one of the most liberating and freeing aspects of the practice that you're doing. Because generally people are driven by their thoughts. You know, it's like the thoughts of the little dictators in the mind saying, do this, do that, go here, go there, be this way, be that way. But when we look to see what thoughts actually are, we see how essentially empty, there's nothing much there when we're mindful of them. Oh, is that so? Is that so? Gone. But when we're not mindful, when we're not aware, unknowingly we're giving this huge amount of power to these thoughts and they run our lives. So there's a tremendous opportunity here to open to a space of real freedom, of real peace. Then it allows us <coughs> to see with some discernment what thoughts are helpful, what thoughts are wholesome, what thoughts are onward leading, and we cultivate them. And we see which are unhelpful or unskillful and unwholesome. And simply in seeing that and seeing the empty nature, we can let them go. In one discourse, Ananda, who was the Buddha's cousin and attendant, and a very everyone loved Ananda. He was he was just this very lovable guy. One time he was speaking to the Buddha and recounting all the marvelous qualities of the Buddha, you know, of which there are countless. So, you know, all his great wisdom and his great powers and great compassion, and he was going on this whole list. And then the Buddha said to Ananda, <clears throat> and this too should be remembered as one of the marvelous qualities, that the Tathagata, which is how he referred to himself, that the Tathagata is aware of thoughts as they arise, abide, and pass away. That this too is one of the marvelous qualities of the Tathagata. Well, that's great news, because we can share in this. You know, we think of, oh, we, 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 being like the Buddha is really far off, because, you know, this, the level of his accomplishment is so incomparable. And yet the Buddha is pointing to this marvelous quality, which we can actually practice. That he is aware of thoughts as they arise, abide, and pass away. That's how freeing it is when we're able to practice that and see that. We're no longer under the sway, we're no longer under the dominion of this thought process. Don't underestimate the importance of this because unnoticed thoughts have a tremendously powerful effect in our lives. And we're just playing out their conditioning. Yet when we see them arising, abiding, and passing away, we see that in and of themselves they have no power at all. It doesn't matter what they're saying. So give, give attention to this. As we pay attention just to the everyday unfolding of our experience, we begin to see just so clearly that not only with thoughts, but that whatever has the nature to arise will also pass away. The important point in this is that this is not something we need to create. The seeing that everything which arises also passes away, we don't need to be in some fantastic state of concentration or some meditative state. 
because everything in its nature is happening like this. So all we have to do is kind of sit back and watch the show. You know, we're sitting back a very relaxed way. It doesn't require kind of tensing or striving or struggling. It's just relaxing with awareness into the flow of changes, the flow of experience. It's all happening by itself. We simply need to notice it and to pay attention to it. When we do, you know, when we can finally relax enough and simply let the process unfold and we see with greater and greater clarity the momentariness of phenomena, at first it's very exhilarating. You know, it's when we, when we finally realize, oh, this is just the nature of things, and we're, we're in this flow of changes, it's hugely exhilarating. And at this time, there can be a very uh, refined perception of change. We can be seeing it so clearly, and the mind gets so bright. It, the mind at this time, it almost like becomes uh, like a shining piece of crystal. You know, and so everything is just illuminated uh, with, this, with this brilliant clarity. And often people, when, when they settle into this place of understanding, very often the feeling arises in oneself, no one has ever experienced this before. <laughs> you know, that I'm really special. <laughs> because it is so extraordinary. The, the, the simplicity of seeing how things really are happening is just so uh, extraordinary that we're seeing it so clearly. This state is called pseudo-nirvana because we can take it to be the ultimate peace you know, because of the clarity of understanding. And we see, we're seeing things with such precision. And at this point, it's very helpful to have some wise guidance, because otherwise we can get very attached to this state. And so we need to see and just be guided to really the next stage in practice, which has an interesting name. It's called The next stage is called discerning what is the path and what is not the path. Because in the state of great clarity, all the factors of awakening actually become what are called the corruptions of insight. Right? Not because the qualities are bad, they're all the qualities Annie talked about last night, but at this particular stage we can get attached to them. It feels so good and it's so uplifting. But if we can stay mindful, you know, of the times when there is joy and rapture and peace and calm and energy, you know, all the, all the really wholesome states of mind. If we can remember just to stay mindful that they also are arising conditioned states, then we see what is the path and not the path. We don't get attached and we move on. The practice unfolds even further. As it unfolds, we go through phases that are not so joyful. We begin to see the dissolving side of things, not that things are arising and passing. We're seeing the mind is, the mind is focusing on the passing away nature. And so everything we look at is dissolving, 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 dissolving. It's like the rug is being continually pulled out from under us that there is no security, there is no place to land. So this can be upsetting. You know, it really shakes up any notion of stability. So the mind goes through some phases, sometimes of fear, you know, or even despair, because there is nothing. It becomes very clear, experientially and deeply, that there is nothing to hold on to. We're seeing everything dissolving all the time. And this stage has a very appropriate nickname. It's called the rolling up the mat stages. 
because all people want to do is roll up their mat and leave. It's too, it's too unsettling, even though it's a deepening of the practice. You know, the practice is actually leading onward, but it goes through. Maybe it's comparable in some way to you know, what St. John of the Cross called the dark night of the soul. Just seeing the insecurity and the unreliability of phenomena deeply, you know, and seeing that there's no place to hold on to for security. But with encouragement and with perseverance, if we can just stay mindful of all that, now these are the dukkha stages where we're understanding more and more deeply the first noble truth. Where we're understanding not conceptually, where we're experiencing the truth of dukkha, of conditioned existence. If we can stay balanced, if we can stay mindful, oh, it's like this, it's like this. Really being with the dissolution of phenomena, then the mind moves through this phase and it comes into a place of great equanimity. And this comes again to an experience of very great peace, very great calm, very great uh, quiet joy. At this point, everything, the practice becomes very smooth, very effortless. It's as if the whole, the whole practice is just rolling on by itself. What's interesting here is that the Vedana, the feeling tone in this place of equanimity, goes from pleasant to neutral. And we begin to experience the neutral Vedana as actually being more pleasurable than pleasant, because it's a more refined kind of feeling. And so the practice just gets very even and very smooth. Ajahn Jamnian, who's one of the great Thai masters who's taught in this country a fair amount, he describes this particular place in practice. He said, at some point the mind becomes so clear and balanced that whatever arises is seen and left untouched with no interference. One ceases to focus on any particular content And all is seen as simply mind and matter, an empty process arising and passing away of its own. A perfect balance of mind with no reactions. There is no longer any doing. And that's the piece of it. It's all going on by itself. There's no one doing anything. Sometimes at this phase, all objects disappeared and all that's left is knowing. Not knowing of anything, just just the bare experience of knowing. There can be a very subtle attachment to this state and this becomes one of the most subtle holdouts of the sense of self. Because we can be aware of the different objects arising and passing and begin to understand, at least to some extent, their impermanent selfless nature. But still be being identified with the one who's knowing it all. And especially at this deeper level of practice, the stages of equanimity, where at times all there is is knowing, A lot of care is needed here. It's easy to make a home of this awareness, of this knowing, and for the sense of self to settle right in. And so we become the knower. Mahasi Sayadaw, the great great Burmese master, is kind of the grandfather of this whole tradition. He describes this state. He said, at times the number of different objects to note may shrink to one or two, or all may even disappear. However, at this time the knowing consciousness is still present. 
in this very clear open space of the sky, there remains only one very clear blissful consciousness, which is very clear beyond comparison and very blissful. Yogis tend to take delight in this clear blissful consciousness. This is known as Dhamma Raga, that is lust for the Dhamma. They're taking delight in this clear blissful consciousness. At this time it has to be noted, knowing, knowing, knowing. Right? So that we're aware of it without identifying with it. Other traditions talk of how we can disidentify with the knowing, with awareness, uh, from a different angle. In some Tibetan and Zen teachings, they talk about the practice of actually looking for the mind and seeing if we can find it. (coughs) And one interesting practice to do here, and I find this very uh, engaging, sometimes uh, in listening, when there are ongoing sounds, you know, and the sound becomes the predominant object in your experience, just to relax, hearing the sound, and ask yourself the question, can I find what's knowing the sound? Okay, because the sound is so obvious, we don't, there's no struggle in, in actually finding the object. The sound is there, we know we're knowing it, but can I find what's knowing it. And when we look to see, can I find what's knowing it, we see there's nothing to find. In Tulko Urgen, he called this not finding the mind is what is to be found. It's that understanding. And there's a very famous Zen dialogue which captures this. It's it's a dialogue between Bodhidharma who's the Indian adept who brought Buddhism from India to China, very fierce master, and he was sitting in a cave for nine years facing the wall. Uh, three months, nothing. <laughs> and then this one, you know, seeker comes to ask for teachings, and this guy is really suffering. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing his name right, but it's Huika, H-U-I-K-E. And he's beseeching Bodhidharma, please teach me. And at first Bodhidharma just is ignoring him, but the guy is very sincere. So Bodhidharma finally comes out you know, and says, what do you want? And he says, I'm suffering so much, please pacify my mind. And Bodhidharma says, show me your mind and I'll pacify it. And Hueka says, I've looked for it everywhere and I can't find it. And Bodhidharma says with tremendous incisive clarity, Hueka says, I've looked for it everywhere and can't find it. Bodhidharma says, there, it's already pacified. So this is a very profound teaching in just these few lines. When we look for our minds, and be interesting to do it with sound because it's, it's a very easy, easy uh, arena. Look for our minds, can find it. In the not finding, it's already pacified. You know, from whatever anxiety, troubles, restlessness, whatever. And I've used this, I've used this teaching very often just in walking about. You know, if I find my mind is disturbed about something or worrying about something, and because I'm so familiar with the dialogue, I just use the shorthand of already pacified. It's reminding myself of the mind can't be found, already pacified. And immediately the mind comes to that place of peace. So this is another way of getting free of the identification with the knower, with the knowing. 
you know, when we look for the mind and can't find it, we're seeing its empty nature. There's another way of practice I found really helpful. And as you see, there are just many different approaches to disidentify with the knowing, with awareness, so we we don't make a home of that. We don't create a sense of self in that identification. There's one verse in the Dhammapada, you know, a collection of the Buddha's verses, which I also found just so incisive. It's kind of like Bodhidharma's dialogue, where the Buddha says, let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present, and cross over to the further shore. So we've heard a lot about let go of past, let go of future. That kind of makes sense to us. But that line, let go of the present. So on retreat, and again, the retreat is a great laboratory. You have all this time just to explore you know, your mind and your body and your experience and how we're relating to things. So it's a fantastic opportunity. You know, it's, it has been said very often, it's exceedingly rare. Not many people sign up for this. So let go of the past, let go of the future, let go of the present. Cross over to the further shore. So on retreat, I was just reflecting on that and, and seeing, okay, how can I put it into practice? And it's very interesting to let go of the present. It's like letting go even of fixation on the present. Very often, because there's so much instruction about staying in the present and being in the present and be attentive to the present, which is all helpful. We need to be in the present, and then we need to let go of the present. We need to let go of any fixation, any stickiness to the present. So it's like dropping back. And what I call the experience, (coughs) I call that experience of kind of dropping back from that fixation on the present, I call the channel zero. Our mind is like a TV with lots of channels. There's a meta channel, there's a greed channel, there's an anger channel, there's a delusion channel, there's a concentration channel. So it's all, and we can learn, you know, we can use the inner remote to find the the good programs. But in the end, we want to let go of everything. We want to let go of fixation even on the present. And so we drop back into channel zero, which is that open emptiness of mind without any clinging at all, without any grasping at all. Out of this equanimity of mind, when it's ripened, when it's mature, when the mind is settled in this place of equanimity, then when all the conditions are right, when the factors of awakening all come into balance, then the mind very spontaneously and intuitively can open to what is beyond conditioned phenomena. It's that opening to what's called the deathless or the unborn or nibbana. It's the dropping into what is unconditioned, unformed, unborn. And these moments have the power to uproot defilements in the mind. So it's not just letting go of them temporarily, and this happens in stages, and it's described as the four stages of enlightenment. At each stage, when we drop into this unborn reality, it has the power to progressively uproot different defilements. 
the Buddha talked of this uh, in many different ways. And I'd just like to read a few of the words uh, that he described this unborn reality because no words can really describe what's unborn. Just think for a moment what just what that means. You know, if something is unborn, there's nothing there to describe. And it, it is its own reality. But the Buddha used a lot of words to uh, indicate it and the collection of words point to its ultimate value. He called it the unfashioned, the end, the true, the beyond, <coughs> the subtle, the very hard to see, the ageless, the undecaying, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, bliss, solace, the exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the secure, Nibbana, the unafflicted, the passionless, the pure, release, non-attachment, the island, a shelter, a harbor, a refuge, the ultimate. So all of these different words just describing the ultimate value you know, of this fruit of practice. And we go through all of these different perspectives or different stages, different aspects of the unfolding process, culminating in the opening to this highest peace. I'd just like to close with uh, some words from Bhikkhu Bodhi, which I find very encouraging. He said, liberation is the inevitable fruit of the path and is bound to blossom forth when there is steady and persistent practice. The only requisites for reaching the final goal are two, to start and to continue. If these requirements are met, there is no doubt the goal will be attained. And so this is within the range of us all. There are only two requisites, to start and to continue. Well, you've all started, and you're all continuing. And so it's just to allow this amazing path to unfold. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.